Hello, Dimitri. Welcome to the Creative Insider Podcast. Hey, how are you? Thank you so much for having me here. Uh, I'm good. I'm, I'm super happy to have you on because uh, now it has started this sort of um, architectural and design network. And uh, this was also one of my goals so when I started the podcast that we create a network of channels. And I saw you have had uh, Mariana on the show. And then you've been on Oliver's show, Oliver Thomas, Mariana Cabuguera. So it's so cool. But you can briefly introduce yourself, who you are, what you do, and something about you that uh, people might not know yet. Yeah, I, I do agree. It's kind of cool. So uh, maybe after this show, I invite you to my show, you know, to continue the circle around. <laughs> yeah, that would be cool. Uh, yeah, definitely. Uh, so, so a little bit about me. So what should I say? I'm an architect, basically. I think most architects, you know, when, I, when you ask them what they are, that's the only thing that comes to mind, right? Because we're so in, in, invested in our work that it's hard to think of anything else like that people might be interested in. But uh, so I, I studied in the US, in the UK, uh, at the AADRL program. And uh, that's where I know quite a few of those, those people around. And then working in London, I started with Agile Associates, which, you know, is a bit in the spotlight for not so positive reasons at the moment. And then worked... Why? What, what, another... what happened? I don't know about the not so positive spotlight about it. Oh, so uh, with Agile Associates, there was some newspapers that published some things about... Uh, some harassment that was happening in the office. Uh, so yeah, quite a, quite a few things. Uh, I would like to not talk too much about that, you know, because it's not my place. Uh, and also, you know, I experienced that place maybe 10 years ago. So I don't know how much it's changed. Uh, what I can say is that it was definitely like a very challenging environment. Uh, but it also had some positives back then, you know, because, the turnover was so high, you know, people were coming, people were going, that uh, I, the responsibility that I had while working there uh, was probably the same responsibility I gained in, let's say, more properly run office, uh, like seven, eight years after, you know. Uh, and the client, my main client when I was working there was Goldman Sachs for, we were d doing the, uh, the auditorium in their new London headquarters and he's based in New York. So we're still friends. So every time I go to New York, you know, we have dinner and we catch up. So it's kind of cool in that respect. In other respects, not so cool, you know, but the chunk of my experience was at HOK where I work across. You are very atypical architect because I think that the uh, most interesting about you it's uh, your background, because as you said, you've been uh, working and studying uh, in the US, in the UK. So a big background between uh, two worlds, uh, I think, because I think that the approach of architecture changes a lot uh, in the different regions, in the different countries. And also uh, you have your own YouTube channel and you have this... Um, very interesting hybrid uh, architecture practice, which is something in between a studio and an academy. And you're starting to get affirmed as the the blender person in the industry. Everybody kind of connects you with that. So uh, can you expand more on this, how it started, how it is going, how you come with this idea of uh, 
starting this UH studio and uh, UH Academy. Uh, it's very interesting. Yeah, so I've been using Blender basically since undergraduate, since my thesis. And um, I didn't know anything back then, you know. Then I remember I had an internship and uh, they were asking whether I can do some rendering. So I was like, yeah, of course I can do it. I'm no problem. I'll just learn on the job. So, you know, it killed me. I was working like days and nights and weekends to figure out this damn program. But in the end, I did figure it out. So <laughs> I learned it and that was quite uh, useful. And then I sort of carried it on with me. Then at the AA, DRL, Design Research Lab, it's, qu it's quite uh, research-based. So what we study there is, you know, the verge of architecture and research, right? So it's very parametric. At, my, at the time that I was there, it was Maya processing a little bit of Grasshopper, uh, Rhino, uh, Python, you know. So all these kinds of tools, like design technology tools that uh, make you think outside of like the typical architecture box. And that's why I decided to go there, you know, is to experience that, which was beyond the more, let's say, more traditional architecture. And when I left there, like we studied Maya a lot, right? So because the program is associated highly with Zaka Hadid architects. So our tutors were former students that now work at Zaka Hadid. So they were teaching us the way that we're using it in the office. And, you know, everybody was like, oh, fantastic. You know, we're learning all these tools. In fact, uh, one of the last, the, the criticisms that we always got when we were at presenting was, uh, what we are showing is like trying to highlight the importance of the software a lot more than the actual architecture. So where's the architecture, right? That was like a constant. And we were like, oh, but you know, how do we do both? We don't have enough time to do that. So uh, it was challenging, I say, because we had to learn. So, so clearly, you know, you had to learn the tool before you can apply it to architecture. Anyway, so afterwards... Uh, learning Maya, I was like, I know that actually Blender can do all of that. And I just started using it, not only for Zaha-esque architecture, because, you know, the kinds of offices that I worked in. Sometimes we did actually have these kinds of projects in the Middle East with HUK, but sometimes not. Uh, but I really enjoyed it. I started learning it more because it's a free program. Nobody cared in the office that I was using a free program. Sometimes, you know, I did get uh, the the bus factor question, you know, what happens with this project if you get hit with the bus? You know, who's going to take over what you're doing? Uh, but I just, you know, shrugged these comments off. And yeah, so at some point then I started having my own teams and then I had to teach the people that I was working with who are younger than me, more junior than me, how to use Blender because, you know, for the kinds of projects that we were working in, which are mostly concept-driven projects for the Middle East, it's a perfect tool. And I had to spend a lot of time with each person, sitting by them, you know, showing them how to do this, how to do that, how to open, how to model. I was like, this would probably be much better if I made it into a course. So I can just refer to them to the course and they can watch it there. So then I'm not wasting my time teaching each person individually. They can pick it up and then they can be more helpful within the project. So that's how UH Studio Academy started, which is I try to keep them a little bit separate. So that's a separate entity than UH Studio, which is more about uh, collaborations and private and individual projects. 
And did you do this just because you wanted to help your team or maybe the company supported you in doing it and they paid for it to teach their employees? No, the company did not support me. I mean, it was, it's a big, so it's HOK. So they're a big corporate company. Uh, and, you know, in those kinds of companies, you have two kinds. One kind is like the, let's say the foster type, which is very intense. And maybe like everything is so work focused and work driven that you barely have the opportunity to do anything beyond. And then, and then the other ones are corporate, but let's call them a bit more friendly. So less competitive. So HOK was like very friendly. So you can do a lot of things inside of it. Like want to teach grasshopper workshops? Sure. You know, there was always some people that came up. You want to organize some yoga lessons, some yoga classes? Sure. You know, like people would always like find in, uh, their little niche and there'll be people that will be interested in that kind of thing. And um, how did you end up there? You ended up in HOK at Lo in London or in the US um, or was it after the AA? So first I worked at Agile Associates, then I worked at a, another company, but it was a bit short because it was a bit of a misfit. And you know, it happens to all of us. At some point you go to an office and you're like, it sounds great on paper. It is a fantastic office, but somehow I don't quite feel right in there. So there was a brief stint at a company called AHMM, which, uh, and after that I started working at HOK and I actually got a via recruit, which it wasn't like the kind of place that I would even think about. Uh, but uh, at the point, I was having our, we were having our first child, and I had an offer from Grimshaw, and then HOK via recruiter. And you know, when you're thinking, when you have a child, your priorities change a little bit. And sure, you know, Grimshaw is known a lot more for its design capabilities and so on. But HOK, we're offering a higher salary, so that's where I chose to go. Yeah, that and that's in London, by the way. That, that happens a lot with architects when they have these external factors in their life because in the beginning of everyone's career, everyone is focused on working on this big project, on working on something cool, and they're not taking care about um, the salary because our profession is also like something that feels like a hobby or like a passion. And there are things that are beyond uh, beyond money. But in the end of the day, it's something that we all do to leave and pay the bills. And this is one thing that I'm asking lately to many people that join the podcast and they have studied uh, as you did in the US. Uh, you've been in Philadelphia, if I'm not uh, wrong, right? Yes. In Phil uh, we have had guests that have been at the AA in uh, Vienna and we talk about this education and it's renowned that in the US also education is quite expensive. Also at the AA, the uh, tuition is not so affordable. How do you see this after your experience? Is it worth it? Because architecture is not a profession where you get and work for the big fishes and then you get this, uh, as I like to say, fuck you money. Like It's not like you go to join, I don't know, Goldman Sachs as an investment banker and then basically after a few years you have solved your... <laughs> you have quite uh, solved the money problem in your life. So how do you uh, see it afterwards now that you have a lot of also practical experience? Is this something that has given you really a good return of investment? 
It's a funny story you mentioned. And before I get to answering your question, you just reminded me that uh, almost all the Bulgarian people that I know, I'm Bulgarian, by the way, originally, like you are. So all the Bulgarian people that I know in London, you know, they work, ended up working for banks, even if they're not like into finance, if they're into programming, they also worked into banks, you know, but then they bought houses or an apartments like five years later. And I was like, how in the world did they do that? But maybe that also does answer your question a little bit. <laughs> so I do remember, I think it was on your podcast that I was listening an episode where you were talking with a guest about uh, fees and, and finances. And, uh, and uh, yeah, so, you know, in, in the UK, they're quite expensive now because the UK is outside of the EU. So if you are from the UK, it costs about £9,200 per year. If you're out from outside of the UK, it's about £20,000 per year. Uh, when I was deciding on graduate school, I was deciding between Columbia University, DAA, and Berlach Institute. And at that point, which was over 10 years ago, Columbia uh, was going to be actually more expensive than DAA. Uh, but that's not the main reason that I decided to go to the AA instead of Columbia. Columbia was too close to home. So that's why I was like, I need something else. And their program is just a year long. So they, they um, fit three semesters into a whole year with the summer. And I just felt a bit too intense for what I wanted. At that point, their program was $60,000. Um, the AA when I attended, it was like 26,000 pounds or so. Uh, it's probably jumped a bit because everything, you know, especially education seems to be uh, stacking up higher, or getting more expensive, a little bit faster than the typical inflation rate. Uh, even my undergraduate school has gotten so much more expensive. And it's a good question because, you know, when I grew up, we always thought, okay, you, uh, and, you know, my parents, my mom has a university degree, but my dad doesn't. So, you know, you, you were, I was told that education would give me better opportunities, right? That was very important and that was kind of embedded. But now I look at it and I look at my children and I'm thinking, you know, the, the amount of money that university costs and the opportunities they might have after that. And it, it financially, it doesn't make as much sense anymore unless you study in a place where university fees are a little bit more attainable. Yeah, because I was thinking the same. Um, I know people, as I told you, from everywhere, and they have studied at a, a lot of places. And also, like, people that have been at regular university, like myself, have done great things and have joined big companies and big names because also architecture is something that it's in my opinion it really relies on your own effort to put the work and learn what you need to learn because the big universities the great universities they give you just a way better infrastructure Maybe you'll have better workshops to make models or you'll have better courses for Grasshopper and you'll get these advantages. But if you're in a normal university, it's not like that you don't get all those things. Maybe you get them in a smaller scale or it's not so always accessible, but it's doable. And I am in the same position as you. I'm exactly the same position where my mom has a degree, my dad doesn't, and in their mind, architecture was a very good profession because it's 
Also, one very good thing that nobody mentions in architecture is that we have to show a portfolio and it's a very tangible skill that you have. You're building something physical. So if you can do it, it's clearly that you can do it. And if you're not, you cannot like bullshit your way through uh, for, for the long term. But in the end of the day, if you have uh, spent so much money on education, it's not so, it doesn't make the count, the, the, in the end, the sum, it's not, it's not working really well. And how did you do it in the States? Did you need to get a loan or is there maybe, because I know also the States have a great system to give you a scholarship. Um, did you manage to get something like that? I was lucky in the States. So in the US, you have two kinds of universities. Actually, three, if we want to be more correct about it. You have public universities, you have private universities, and you have publicly affiliated universities. Uh, with public universities and publicly affiliated universities, you have in-state tuition and out-of-state tuition. And in-state tuition tends to be much cheaper. Some states are much better than others. California is a very good example. If you're a California resident, it costs so much cheap. It's like, I don't know how what the fees are these days, but let's say like $6,000 per year or something like that, which on the scale of U.S. Edu higher education, that's very, very cheap. Uh, so when I went, I went to Temple University, which is in Philadelphia, and that's a publicly affiliated university. So there the fees were about $10,000 per year. And I was quite lucky because I had a few scholarships. So I didn't have to take even any loans out. I had a merit-based scholarship and a financial needs scholarship. So they covered all my tuition, but for only four years because architecture is a five-year degree in the US, a Bachelor of Architecture, which is by the way, getting phased out. And more the more typical uh, route now is four-year bachelor, uh, uh, not, not a Bachelor of Architecture, but a four-year Bachelor of Science degree and then a two-year MARC degree, Master of Architecture degree. So, which sucks because that's a whole extra year of, you know, tuition that you have to pay. But the shortest way, and there's still some universities that offer it in the U.S. is five years, which is the same in the U.K., by the way. Uh, so, in so I was lucky for four years and then the fifth year, you know, my parents... Uh, we grew up as immigrants, so, you know, it was a little bit tough at sometimes financially, but then eventually, you know, my father had found a good job, so he was able to support uh, me for the last year. And I think I started taking out loans after Italy when I started enjoying life a little bit and coffee. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. And uh, did you, um, and for the, for the AA, then you needed support from your parents or did you work something aside to, to manage to afford that one too? Or how did you manage? So I went to a public university, right? Which is very diverse in that kind of university. First off, it's a town within a town, especially because it was in a very bad area of Philadelphia. And you had people that, you know, went to get PhDs at Harvard and you had people that dropped out and were getting stoned all the time, you know. So I, I had that experience and I wanted like the complete opposite, you know, something that was, let's say, a little bit more exclusive, more international and so on. So I seeked out like those kinds of programs uh, and uh, uh, my parents basically, you know, they assisted me significantly with that. They weren't happy about it, uh, but they they could have said no, by the way. So I'm grateful for that experience. It's fundamental to get your parents' support in these activities because 
it gives you just so much push in my opinion when you have the support and then you don't doubt anymore your decisions uh, i had the same thing when i came to frankfurt i told my parents like uh, look i'm going for this exchange program it's going to be a little bit more expensive i'll need to live outside of home so i'll need to pay rent i'll need to have uh, money to pay the bills and and they were like yeah if you think this is a if you're gonna use this opportunity to build a career and a network do it and we're gonna do whatever it takes and then it's better to not have a, the latest iphone <laughs> but to have a better education which many people don't get uh, correct and you you work at these great offices after your education uh, i've talked about uh, this with other guests too and i want to hear also your opinion because i have the feeling you're very down to earth and you're very open about all the downsides the upsides of this kind of um, works was it fundamental for you to then learn and achieve what you have achieved was it fundamental to join those companies do you think that if you haven't worked at these big names and maybe work for smaller offices that maybe paid higher salaries you would have gotten where you are now or did you learn something really way different at a uh, hok or at uh, dia associates uh, can you say that question again because i either got it wrong or you said it wrong so i'm not sure which one now if it's fundamental for your skills to work like do you learn something about architecture and these companies that is so much game changing compared to i don't know a normal office well, I would say they are normal offices, you know, at least in the UK. So London is uh, one of the design capitals, let's say, of the world. So right now, half of London, if not more, is working for Saudi Arabia. Uh, so be, besides Neom, there are loads and loads of different other projects that require the, the design expertise. And it's happened before. It was China beforehand. Before that, it was Qatar, and before that, it was Dubai. So most of Dubai, most of Qatar is built by British companies. Not all, but most, and British engineering as well. So London is like a rather unique place in that respect because it has a very strong international outlook into it. So you also do have some companies that tend to work more locally as well, right? So they tend to focus more on, let's say, constructability and... Uh, well, basically that, right? So how do you design something, but then how do you go and you tender it and, you know, the full process. Whereas the work somehow that I was doing uh, the whole time I was in London, I would say, except funny enough at Agile Associates, because I did have a London-based project with them, was abroad, right, international. So with those international projects, we always have a local partner. Or sometimes we only do the conceptual design stages and then somebody else picks up the the working drawings, the schematic design, the construction drawings, right? So we advise them because typically our fees are too high for, let's say, Greece. We had some projects in Greece, right? So they only hire us for the ideas. Then they're like, okay, we're happy with what you guys provide and we have somebody else pick it up. So to circle back to your question, uh, definitely I learned a lot in those kinds of companies. And the way I see it is that education is teaches me a way of thinking, right? And that's why I do value it still. I think it is a great investment and different types of educations 
teach you a different kind of design thinking. It's not really about the software so much or, you know, technology. It's, it's about exposure to ideas, to theories, to history, and so on. And in both my degrees, I'm actually rather fortunate that when I was at Temple University, the program was really great, and we had, like, a excellent staff that were really passionate, young staff that were teaching us, yeah, everything that we needed to know. But... Um... Uh, what, did you t did you learn because you mentioned like uh, when you were at these companies you have uh, worked in these different uh, projects the way that architecture is approached at these uh, offices is it did you ask for your approach to architecture you've learned at university or they taught you something that they already were applying. So I think it's a it's a mix like. Mm -hmm. uh, that takes a couple of different steps. Uh, you have to be, and I do think this sincerely, you have to be fortunate enough to work in an office and it doesn't matter the kind of office. It could be a, a, a tiny little office. It could be like the biggest office in the world. And each, you know, the big offices, they all are separate. They all have separate teams that are handling different parts of the business. Some like HOK, they're focused on different sectors like sport, mixed use, hospitality, and so on. Others like Zahar are focused on, you know, some doing competitions. Others are doing like, you know, they have different kinds of clusters and so on. Uh, so, if you work in an office, again, it doesn't matter which one, but you work in a team that understands how to apply architectural design, then I think you're really fortunate because to me, that's where you really learn how to become an architect. University is more of like the background and the design, design criteria to get you to a level where you can do the next steps after that. So I see it as absolutely essential to have, you know, varied experience as well, not just, you know, one kind of experience, but very different kinds of experiences. And after all this background that you have, what is for you, what is your type of architecture? What is your approach to architecture? Do you have, have you built your own design philosophy? What would you, uh, what do you like to transfer in your own projects now? If you have something that it's uh, for you after, because everyone starts architecture with certain with a certain naive observation of it. I don't know. When I started, I saw the first uh, Maxi Museum from Zaha in Rome, and I was like, "Wow, this is so cool!" And now, after ten years or over in the business, and after all the studies, that's. I like it, but it's not my wow thing that I think about the first when I think about architecture. What is for you? What is your design philosophy when you think about architecture? So UH, my studio, UH Studio stands for Unity and Harmony. So Unity and Harmony between men or women, you know, we have to be I guess, a little <laughs> bit more diverse now, uh, technology and nature. So it's understanding the intersection of those couple of things in here. And I also come from Philadelphia. Louis Kahn is the most famous architect from Philadelphia. And his eternal motto is, what does a brick want to be? Or a version of that. Some of my professors, the other ones, actually learned under Louis Kahn as well. So that was kind of ingrained in me. And I, I start every project with the same ideas. You know, so I have to be a bit more open minded about it and not deterministic because through the rigorous and proper design 
process, and I do think that there is a proper design process, uh, you get to a solution or even multiple solutions that kind of discover, they, they emerge from all the research, from all the iterations that, ha- that need to happen in the process. Yeah, but I think certain people I have a certain style, like I don't know, Zahadid or um, um, Liebeskind, they have very strong styles in a certain sense. Uh, Norman Foster, although it's maybe not so strong as, uh, like you, if you see a building, you can say that's uh, for them. And I uh, I didn't mean stylistically because I don't believe really in style. As you said, it you have to have an approach, but the outcome has to be open-minded. Um, what are some questions or some challenges that you put in front of yourself when you think about architectural design? Because as you said, you've centered more uh, about the humanity. And uh, how do you say UH stands for? Uni- unity and harmony. Unity and harmony. Between so, nature and technology. Yeah. So how how do you what are what are some questions that you ask yourself? I don't know. What technology would serve the user or if you have some, I don't know. Well, yeah, that's a good question actually. Uh, it it starts really with uh, the project, you know, contextualism I think is quite important and understanding that. And in fact, I'm getting influenced a lot by living here in Bulgaria, where you know it's it's a it's an odd thing to be here. To be honest, I didn't think I'll be living here again. Uh, it's got its positives and negatives as all places, but one of the challenges here, definitely after communism fell, is urban design uh, or the lack there of it because there isn't any. And so these days, uh, I'm living in a city called Varna, which is on the seaside. So it's a small town, and it's very communist you know you have a very nice city center you've got beaches so it's a tourist place as well but then the rest of the city is just soviet blocks right so a lot of it looks that way Uh, so what i'm feeling at least in like places like this is the importance of urban design and having like something that looks well together because here you do start to have a couple of buildings you know there there are a few bulgarian architects that are outputting some better work you know so it looks more on a international level you know there's there's a design concept behind it let's say that it's not just building for the sake of building because i don't even consider that architecture that's let's say developer driven projects which request for you to have so and so square meters with so and so many apartments and then you just you know you build up Maybe you put a bit of dressing in those kinds of buildings. The less dressing you put, the better, because if you do put more, they tend to look worse, not better. Uh, whereas if you start with a concept, you know, and maybe that's a bit of what I do as well, is, have, is starting with a very strong concept in mind. You know, is it a reference to something? Is it a reference to the context? Is it is it a reference for the client aspirations or something else. The concept is super important. And perhaps I was also, again, lucky enough to work in firms where uh, I had the opportunity to work with more senior designers uh, that paid attention to that. That's a that's a good answer. Like to start with something more conceptual. Yeah, we we've been talking about this. Uh, the sp- the spreadsheet design is the other one. The one that's basics to, uh, exclusively on uh, how many square meters and how many cubic meters and so on and so forth. And you mentioned you've moved back to Bulgaria after a very um, long experience abroad. 
uh, across continents uh, and across Europe? 25 years, I would say. More of my life is abroad than inside of the country. When did you move out for the first time? How old were you when, when you 11, first left? I was a kid. Ah, we, so we you were... were basically immigrants in the US. But you first moved to the US or you mentioned Italy? How did it uh, went your life? Yeah, so we moved to the United States. You know, I went there to middle school, I guess it was, then mm -hmm. high school, mm -hmm. uh, and then university. And then my university has, uh, in the U.S., we have study abroad, which mm -hmm. is different than Erasmus. Mm -hmm. Study abroad is basically your university has a campus somewhere, uh, and uh, then you go and study at it. Temple University, the university that I went to, had an arts campus in Rome and in Tokyo, in Japan. And uh, I decided to have a semester abroad, which basically almost everybody does, actually. So it's really funny. So in Rome and Florence, and as you know, somebody that's lived in Rome, uh, there are a lot of Americans, but especially architects, because I would say almost every architect that studies in the U.S. ends up going to study abroad for at least a semester at some point. I think Americans also love going to Rome because there is the real old stuff that uh, they like to represent. Uh, and a lot of uh, the style, the uh, colonial style or whatever you want to call it, it's it's uh, inspired by, by Italian architecture and Greek architecture and so on. Um, wh wh which year did you go to Italy? I was there in 2008. Okay, so we we might have crossed paths <laughs> somewhere across the city without knowing. Uh, that's cool. But, uh, what you mentioned is actually very interesting because it reminded me of my first train, you know, from uh, the airport to Termini, yeah. which is, you know, I was like, where am I going with all this graffiti? And, you know, it's, I don't know if they cleaned it up since then, but back then, you know, even the metro, there was, had quite a bit of graffiti and so on. But then you land in there and, you know, in the centers of Italy, I was like those Americans. I was like, this is amazing. All the things that I studied about are here. <laughs> architecture yeah. is here. That was very funny in, in architecture school because we have a lot of um, history of architecture and also at La Sapienza University, they focus a lot of restoration and they teach you. It's a very hard um, class you have to take. And um, every time we would study history of architecture, we would have this big book, but mainly we would just meet up at the places and we, we would have a guided, uh, a guided tour through the buildings, which was uh, very cool because everything, it's, it was much easier to learn when you're on the spot instead of reading a book and seeing pictures. Um, and what to push you after, it's a, it's quite brave, in my opinion, what you did to decide to go back to Bulgaria um, after so many years abroad. And also because it's where we were born, but I was just uh, the last few days I was in Bulgaria. And uh, it, it feels very weird because you're surrounded by people that talk like you, look like you, but you don't belong really to the culture. So what pushed you to to do this leap and go back well for us it was a very easy step it was the pandemic and you know we had to be all locked up like uh, london had the uk had the earliest uh, lockdowns during the pandemic and uh, our two-bedroom flat in london 
all of a sudden started feeling very small, you know, and my wife and I were starting to become a little bit more of, let's say, frenemies than just friends, you know, and partners. <laughs> and it was getting even smaller. So she had the brilliant idea of coming here briefly, we thought, uh, and rent out the big house, you know, and just enjoy a bit like more space. Uh, and my company was, I was grateful actually to HUK because they allowed me to work remotely for quite a while. Uh, so that was it. It was the opportunity to be able to work remotely it was the most important one probably. And then, you know, uh, my wife's family is actually from here. Mine is not from here. Actually, my family is in the US. It's not even in Bulgaria. And also you, so your wife is Bulgarian too, like you, you have a yeah. Bulgarian origins and she's Bulgarian. And uh, so you started work remotely and suddenly the rooms felt bigger. The money felt better, I guess. Well, there's, <laughs> there's more rooms. That's, that helps. You know, there's definitely a lot more rooms. Uh, and uh, yeah, of course, a British salary in a place that's a half as cheap or maybe a third as cheap as London, especially London because London is not the UK. Uh, definitely helps a lot. And uh, after the pandemic, at some point, the company said everyone back. And then it was the pushing moment where you said, okay, then I have to move on and start something on my own. Exactly. Yeah. So after the pandemic, um, about a year ago, uh, they requested that everybody spent at least three days in the office. And uh, at that point, you know, I, I, maybe I got a little bit more comfortable with my my paycheck going a little bit further, while at the same time in the UK, there are two things that were happening. One is Brexit. It was just getting, you know, ratified in a way. So prices jumped up because of that and the inflation post-pandemic, like everywhere else. But I feel like because of Brexit, it uh, heightened the the feeling of paycheck to paycheck a bit more there. I think it, I went there and I think there it's a little bit like inflation on steroids <laughs> because here there is inflation, but uh, there it's going wild. And um, so you, how did you prepare for this? Did you have already a network or you just decided, okay, I'm going to just quit and try out? Did you have some runway as Many people like to say like that you had some savings and said like, I don't know, I have 12 months to try and monetize my business somehow. Yeah, so I had a bit of savings, uh, which acquired only by living in Bulgaria was I able to do that because in the UK with my salary, I wasn't able to have some savings. And I would say I was a little bit on the higher end of the spectrum in the UK. By the way, just going back to a question that you had, or maybe you didn't have, but it's good to answer, um, good to respond to is, in the US, even though universities cost a bit more, the salaries for architects are generally a bit higher. In the UK, for some reason, the architecture salaries are quite low compared to the living standards. I think it's because a lot of people go there, as you said, because London, it's this place with so many offices. And I've noticed that in places like uh, the Netherlands or in the, on De or Denmark, when you have these places where there are a lot of people that want to go to work at, they don't need to give you a good salary because you're just so many talented people waiting for, for a spot there. 
And uh, I, I live in Germany and I came to Germany because while I was studying, I've heard that Germany offers great opportunities to work uh, and Italy doesn't at all. And I came here and as a student, I started interning at a company and I was earning more than many of people I knew in Italy were working full-time jobs. Uh, so I, I decided, okay, it makes no sense to go back. And then I started looking for internship at those big names. And then I saw what they were paying. And I said, okay, I cannot afford, afford to go to live there. And I wouldn't ask my parents to support me in order to be able to work for someone else. Because for me, just, I don't know, I grew up with this a little bit mentality that you work to provide for yourself. And for me, despite I understand it's so great to learn at these offices, it didn't make sense to me that <laughs> I have to earn not enough to live somewhere and work there. And this is why I never go. And and I read recently that Germany has some of the highest salaries in Europe. Uh, and actually here, the rule is like one third of your salary goes for your rent. One third goes for life, like the bills and buying your new, new clothes or a car. And one third you save. And this more or less works. So I think it's a good, it's a good place. <laughs> Yeah, especially, you know, Italy has a third of Europe's architects, you know, so, and, and then there's no building in Italy, right? No. Maybe fixing up a house here and there, but the interiors I've seen, they're fantastic, right? <laughs> because that's what, what, what you can do, or you cannot touch so much of the outside, so you go on the inside. And everything you build needs to look kind of old, because they love to, the the. The whole point about people going to Italy is that everything is old and look this has this picturesque look. So they don't want, I mean, maybe in Milan a little bit, but they don't want like crazy new stuff. If you think about the new buildings that are famous in Rome, uh, Max is not in the most historical place. Uh, or for example, there are the there is the Arapaches Museum from uh, Richard Meyer which looks quite like an old building. It's just glass, but with a lot of marble. So yeah, it's not a... But Italy in general, it's, I wouldn't recommend to go nowhere in Italy to, to work because it's too many people are architects and not enough is built. Yeah, it's a tricky one. That's why, you know, in London, I had so many uh, Italian and Spanish colleagues. But I'm surprised about the US because, for example, one big topic in architecture is the overtime that so many offices um, requires you to do overtime or is just required and often it's unpaid. Is this a situation that can happen in the US where I have the feeling, at least from what I've seen while I was there for two, three weeks and from all the movies is that people are very oriented on money, like money is king in the US. So how is it there similar that people have to work overtime because I can, in my imagination, you would say like, okay, I work more, you pay me more. It's, I think with architecture is the same everywhere, right? So you got the, let's say more ambitious firms and the more ambitious uh, workers, designers that have an opportunity to work there. And as you said, you know, if you're early in your career, 
you need a push. You needed some help, right? You cannot work at Zaha, at Zaha or even at J Associates uh, and support yourself unless you know you're not renting out a flat. You're renting out a room somewhere uh, because you you just can't can't afford it. After a while, like in Zaha, you do end up getting a decent salary, but it takes a while. Right. I don't know what the situation is now. I know about the situation, let's say, like 10 years ago, because, you know, the office has grown quite a bit in those 10 years. In the U.S., it's exactly the same. We were considering at some point moving to New York um, post-pandemic from Bulgaria to New York. Uh, but just thinking about, because, I, you know, I have some friends from Philadelphia that worked and lived in New York, and it's... And everybody says that, not only in architecture, but just in general. Whatever London is, New York is twice as intense as that, you know, in all respects. You know, you have to work twice as hard, you know, but the salaries do tend to be higher. Like you can comfortably get, you know, let's say more mid-senior position, $100,000 as a salary per year in New York, but also everything else is a lot higher. So where does that money actually yeah, it's Give the same. You, like, you know, like you can be earning half of that somewhere else, which is more affordable. And you might end up actually having more money out of like after you're finished with your expenses. Well, in my experience, the only way that you can get more money in architecture is going for those part of the project that brings more money, but are not as fancy as um, as it might might look like for example uh, um, construction construction design it's something that it's not so like drawing details is not so cool (laughs) nobody shares their detailed drawings on instagram but uh but we're starting to though Started. Some people started, but it's I think not so successful. <laughs> uh, it's so complicated because it's very like regional related, right? I, as you detail something in Germany, it might not be the same as you do it in the UK or in the states. But it's or construction management. Uh, in every country, there is like uh, the the thing is that architecture is very regulated, and usually to have some quality control. Also in Germany, in Italy, I don't know how it is in the UK and the US. You have some um, regulation for the fees, more or less, an in- indication that says how much you get paid per each uh, phase of the project. And if you look like design, it's the lowest. Uh, the first phases are the lowest. Then there is construction documentation. It's the high, the highest. Construction management is very high. So if you go to work into that field, you ended up not doing concepts and stuff like that, but you get higher money and usually hours are way less because the office gives you this responsibility where money are playing a big role and they don't want people to be overworked and tired when they work because if they make mistakes, those mistakes must might, might cost a lot of money. So uh, this is what I observed uh, related to to how you can make more money as an architect if that's the goal. Yeah, I don't think anybody goes into architecture to make a lot of money. Yeah, exactly. Because it's not the kind of profession. Like the people that do that, they're like, and in some ways, I 
kind of upload them also. It's like, okay, I need to make money. I go into finance and I make money and then I have my life. I have my job and I have my life. Uh, I, I feel like with architects, we're a bit more idealistic, right? We're like, yes, I want to be the artist. But besides the artist, I do want to make a living as the artist, you know? And some people, I guess, yes, over the years, you know, they... Uh, start doing slightly different things. So you have some people that go on the client side of things. So that's where you can actually yeah. earn a lot more also, money. Yeah. Uh, but you relinquish some of your design capability. I mean, actually completely, but you're still kind of involved in the design process, but you're more or less driving the design direction from the client's side. So we're not talking about building little houses, but like big complex projects. So their client side teams very typically look like uh, a big portion of the people are former architects or still architects, but they just prefer to work on client side. Then you have other people that do something that's maybe a little bit related, like 3D printing or, you know, some R&D kind of gig, which is, uh, I know a couple of people in London that started doing that and they're actually doing really well with 3D printers. Um, what else can you do? Others, yes, they, they tend to focus on like one thing that they do really well, like, uh, in the later stages of design. And it, it kind of makes sense when you think about it, unfortunately, because the amount of time that you have to spend early on in the project is a lot more than the amount of time you have to spend later. You still have to spend a lot of time in construction, but it's different, right? You have to reference, you have to go and like detail out buildings. And a lot of those details are repetitive, right? Or you have yeah. like a catalog, so even though you still have to spend a lot of time, it's it's a little bit different, whereas in the initial phases of design, and that's where, I, again, I have most of my experience, it's basically a big black box. It's like, how do we start? You have to start maybe five, ten times until you get to the right solution. You know, we start completely. Uh, I've been in a situation where we even had to rebuild the team because the team somehow, you know, didn't click together. And, you know, even though they're all, we were all great minds somehow together, we couldn't make something work. So, okay, let's rebuild, change the energy a little bit. And okay, so that process just takes time, you know. And, uh, and that's why I was saying initially. Um, and in a way, I would recommend to anybody that has the opportunity to go to, to a more design-driven practice, at least initially. Um, they pay less because their fees are less. Right. And it's again because of this process of how long the proper, I call it the proper design process takes. Of course, people that do that for 10, 20 years, they streamline their process a little bit. They know how to filter through ideas much quicker, how to iterate faster. I think that's very important. Right. So, yeah, in a way, you, you have no choice but to either work as a conceptual design architect and hope maybe at some point you become more senior like in your position uh, in, in the office that you're working with or you know when you're switching offices or you tend to specialize in either within architecture or something that's uh, closely related to architecture but more on the client side yeah it, it, my main goal with this podcast was exactly this to explore the different opportunities and to speak to people that actually have been involved into these offices or in these kind of projects and to help everyone that is involved into this career to have an overview and to decide what with each decision has a price, right? So whether it's lower paycheck and more time at the office, but 
more rewarding towards the outcome of your design uh, or the the other way around um, and for me it's important to address every side of every thing because i'm noticing that a lot of people get disenchanted on the long term with the profession and uh, i think it's important to discuss and address what are the different uh, problems and maybe how they can be solved in the future because i have the feeling that um yeah many people start with great expectations and very passionate and then after five six seven years they are so burned out and they uh, i don't know give up and go do something completely different and there are also this um even there is the my 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 uh, friends from out of architecture who consult people how to get out of the profession so i think it's uh, important to give it a, a thought and to address also companies to maybe change their business models because on the long term it might it might produce a lack of skilled designers and skilled people in in the field um, but going back to your practice, so you, when you started um, the the idea to not go back in the office and not work remote, remotely to London, uh, what was your plan to lift up your business? Because also you have your own podcast in your YouTube channel, which is quite popular. I've watched a couple of videos about architecture. You did also a video about the the one that I more, mostly stuck in my mind was the one about uh, the Saudi Arabia projects where you explained a little bit the different uh, projects going on and it was quite informative and very well done. So did you make a plan to start building this social media presence and see if there is uh, something coming out from there and on one side giving the classes, on the other side the projects uh, or you're doing competitions? How did you start and build up your own business so before i get to that i think what you mentioned before is quite important and i wanted to mention that i had and i think it's perfectly normal i had a couple of crises you know identity crises am i an architect what am i doing with my life is that really what i want to be doing for the rest of my life and i walked away you know i had a couple of months away from practice to have like some time to think and that gave me clarity on how it is that I want to pursue architecture and how I can, you know, in some way make the world a better place, you know, which is through design. So I think it's really important to give ourselves the opportunity to have some time off. You know, with architects, it's so easy to just, especially, you know, you have to, you know, you do your practice. If you're out of practice, you're like, okay, how do I pay my bills or do, do this and that? But you can always move to like a cheaper place. So I think that's super important. And I'm grateful I had the opportunities to do that a couple of times, as I was mentioning, you know, because I did have those very strong identity crises, you know, it's like, what am I doing with my life? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, so now back to your uh, question. So I started like my YouTube channel, uh, very slowly, I would say in the beginning. And it started out as a reaction of 30 by 40 design, the YouTube channel, which is, you know, at that point, maybe like in 2016, the most popular architecture channel. I think there's quite a few now about architecture and construction, but back then it was the most popular. And, you know, the that channel is beautiful. I, all the videos are fantastic. The content is great, but it's a one-man show, right? So 
uh, he was giving, and I think students were consuming a lot of that content, thinking that, you know, that's what architecture is like. And it kind of annoyed me a little bit because I was like, this is not representing the kind of work that I do, the kind of architecture that I do. And I wanted to give a different perspective, one that's more focusing on like what it takes, at least on the conceptual side of things, to design and be involved with larger projects, larger, more complex projects. Of course, doing that is quite difficult because a lot of those projects are guarded by NDAs or we're simply way too busy to have any time off to do whatever it is else, like sleep, you know, look after your family and so on. I mean, it's, it's work, 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 right? So I did it small, like small things initially, which were more focused towards Blender. But the goal, like the, the initial driver was like, I have to show the other side. This can't be. We can't just have like a one-man show that's showing and, and speaking up for all of architecture. And so you decided to give more about behind the stories of some of these more famous project and that are not only made by yourself but made by a group of people or what was the idea so i think i was doing like blender uh, tutorials quite a lot because that's what i'm really good at you know in fact i offer quite a few courses now on on using blender for architectural design and to me it's the kind of software that should make it a part of every architect's toolkit in all the different kinds of offices. I see that as really important and something that I'm really passionate about, especially now with Blender BIM, which is more on the, let's say, more regular side of Blender. So beyond the concept, right? Like how can we use that software? And it's it's there's a lot of progress in there. So Blender was one side of the things, but I always had this idea to to talk about projects that I find inspiring and find interesting. And my list of projects to do is actually <laughs> quite long, you know, but those videos tend to take a while to do. And I think it's important to give the architect's perspective on design projects or even on build projects and say what works, what doesn't, why is it a great project? Why is it not a great project? And how can it be improved in some way? And um, how long does it take you to do this research uh, and to make one of those videos? Because I know clearly how to make it and I know how difficult it might be also to tell it in a proper way on camera. It's also not so simple. Uh, I think it's great. I would recommend every architect to try to build or to try to produce content because it teaches you skills that are beyond architecture, but that can be helpful for work. For example, public speaking or presenting a topic, it's something that could be very helpful through making content. So what is your creative process in that, uh, in that field? Well, I wish I was a bit more structured, but I'm not. I find a topic that I'm interested about. You know, I do some research about it. And if I feel like the pool, if I feel the passion, then I go all in, you know, and then some videos, you know, take a few days to finish. Some take, you know, like 60 hours to finish, you know, sometimes I can fit that in a week, sometimes two weeks and so on. Uh, But it's a skill that's what I like about it is that it kind of builds up on itself. Like if you go and see some of my first YouTube videos, you know, I sound like this and I'm a little bit afraid of the microphone, which is completely normal, you know, because I've never been exposed to that. And as you said, I do believe that the public speaking and being able to uh, present your ideas clearly 
to an audience is a very essential part of architecture, especially getting to the more senior level or project management level where you tend to be doing less work on the desk, you know, with a pencil or with your mouse and more work uh, networking, you know, going out to events and speaking about people, about your expertise and how you can help them. So definitely, I wouldn't suggest social media though, because it takes a while to get like a good presence and you have to practice and it's a completely different skill set. So, you know, to work on YouTube, to be able to post on social media, that required a skill set that I had to teach myself beyond architecture. In a way, it is related to architecture because I talk about architecture, but at the same time, the, the, the process of producing that is its own separate skill. However, there are definitely courses and workshops and seminars. And um, if you're at a more corporate place, they tend to offer some. Like at HOK, we had a couple of public speaking workshops, which are intimate, right? So four, five, six people, but a full day workshop uh, where we do a lot of like um, exercises. And I think that's a very essential skill. So for everybody, you know, some people prefer to be working on their own or not publicly speaking, but have one-to-one chats with people. But others, you know, it might be a necessity for the job, depending on. Mm-hmm. And um, how about your uh, projects that you're doing uh, as a designer? Uh, when you went to, to, to start your own uh, solo studio, how did you seek for assignments? Did you reach out to your network? And what kind of projects are you, have you been able to do? Are you working if you can share something about it yeah so it's a it's quite a mixed bag so at some uh points i've been able to freelance right so work with past clients and help them out with architectural parametric design uh in other instances you know it's through my network of being able to either collaborate with some people and, you know, work on something that perhaps is not my project, but we're collaborating together to make it happen. Uh, in other instances, it's through Network in Bulgaria as well to look into getting some projects. And um, I have to sneeze, but not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. You know how you get that feeling where it's about to come out, but then it decides not to. Uh, good, because that would be really loud in this microphone. So, uh, but actually at the moment, you know, with client work, with architecture, I always find it a little bit tricky. And it's not only myself. I remember even in the office, you know, some clients, they just take forever to pay. You have to chase them. And, you know, uh, maybe they pay you for like 75% of the time that you want. So, so, so it's a process, right? Client-based work. That's why I had this idea um, actually quite a while now back is to build a sustainable online business which is different than architecture. So when that's, and that's still in the process of getting built, by the way, that's UH Studio Academy, which is at the moment setting courses for Blender, but also I'm planning on doing a couple of different courses that are related to architecture design. Uh, and the idea has always been to have that as a sustainable income. So then I can uh, really approach the, 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 the people and the kinds of projects that I am super passionate about to work on. And how do you feel about, uh, I, I'm starting to think a lot about this aspect because a lot of the people I know through the podcast have started this online uh, 
business with uh, different kind of uh, courses or classes. Um, and what is your observation? Um, is the market starting to get oversaturated? Or what is, for example, who are you doing this um, course for? Is it for, I mean, is it for students? Is it for professionals? Um, because it's uh, on social media, my, 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 my feed starts to make me feel I don't know anything because everybody's offering courses about something. <laughs> and it, it, I think that the younger architects might end up risking being like, uh, I don't know, chasing too many things. So what is your observation about this? Should people just pick a couple of those courses? And I don't know, for example, in my opinion, uh, I always think very practical on decision-making about the course. And if I were a student right now, or if I was at the beginning of my career, I would consider very much your Blender course, uh, not because I think Blender is the coolest uh, thing ever, but because I think it's, it's open source. So if I was about to start doing my own projects or start my own office, having a free software, it's a big competitive advantage. Uh, so when you do your course, who you do it for and what do you think is the right way to do a course that it doesn't feel like... Uh, yeah, just, I don't know, people taking it, but then not having uh, the right thing out of it, the right outcome. Uh, so, first off, I think the best people that I know are the ones that are always upskilling themselves, you know, so they're always learning something new. It doesn't matter, like, if you're a senior professional or, like, just a student. Some of the best people that I know, they're always learning something on the side of it. And I think that's really important, you know, to kind of for people to pursue their passions or their specific interests, you know, within architecture and design or elsewhere in a bit more detail. Because uh, that, that, that passion, that drive, then also opens up doors for you professionally, right? So you can mm, uh, specialize. Well, I'm going to talk about the courses that I do, for example. Like, so you can specialize in learning how to really quickly be able to produce concept designs, right? Then you're an asset to your company or your potential new company because what might take somebody twice the time, you can do in half the time because you are have this new skill that not that many people have. So. And you're passionate about it. So I think the passion with the skill is really important. Uh, and in regards to the oversaturation of the market, I think in a way it's just starting. It's, it is great at the moment to be younger and a student, not only, also older, because there are so many different courses. Uh, the challenge is picking out the quality ones, right? How do you know that something is a quality one? And I think, you know, that's where social media plays into account of you to get to know, you know, like your potential uh, teachers, professors, and so on, what they're doing, what they're talking about, to see if that relates to your, your ideas, your interests. And if it does, then, you know, you should go ahead and take it. Uh, and again, I think that uh, it's absolutely super essential for everybody to be learning things all the time. At least that's the way I see it. Maybe some people see it completely different. Uh, in fact, they do. I remember in the office, you know, I'm like showing how I'm learning. Or there was a friend of mine that we tried to do a, 
a PowerPoint presentation, but not in PowerPoint, but some kind of strange, interesting, you know, library that had this kind of Pretzy-like without it being Pretzy. So we spent time, we were like, why not? Let's learn it. You know, and other people are like, why would you spend your time doing that when you can just put a couple of slides in PowerPoint, you know? So I think there's different kinds of people and you have to really be okay with your passions and pursue them. But I think that, um, do you know about the learning pyramid? Have you ever seen it? The learning pyramid? No. No. Uh, the learning pyramid, it's, uh, you can Google it later. It's like a pyramid uh, scheme that shows you how we learn things. And the top of the pyramid is where the activities that teaches you the least and the bottom of the pyramid, because it's a larger base, are the activities that uh, teaches you the most. And actually the least, uh, the way to l learn the least is following a lecture. It teaches you just about 5%. And the two most uh, important part of learning, it's doing and teaching others. So basically, when you teach others, you're so good because you can actually explain what you're doing. And uh, if they have questions, um, they can... Um, they can teach you and they can learn themselves. So I think that um, besides... Um, Besides taking classes, which I think it's fundamental, I, I ask also, this is why I was saying oversaturated, it's what is, in your opinion, the right proportion? Like, let's say if I take your class for Blender, uh, in order to really learn it, I have to follow your class and then do a lot, a lot, a lot of projects on myself. Uh, and then maybe I'll be very good at it. And by offering so many courses i think that people are starting to just take the courses because it feels like they're learning but they're not they're just tipping the, the tip of the pyramid and it's nice because you follow the class and you have a little bit of a result but if you don't practice and i see this from my personal experience because i have taken some classes which i've never followed up doing afterwards i don't know following to do some exercises and then they dissipate in the in the time so um yeah I, I don't know my concern is that it's uh, getting oversaturated and in order to in my opinion in order to promote a class it will be also to show what are the practical advantages of it um and my question well, yeah, is i mean that's part of the the what you have to do anyways right <laughs> is to show it but uh learning is learning you know, it doesn't matter if you're learning in, in high school, in university, or on your own. And you learn through learning the important ways of doing it and then practicing them on your own. So if you're passionate about something, you're going to go out, you're going to seek that information, you're going to go maybe to YouTube and find out a couple of tutorials. But, you know, the, the problem is that they're kind of all over the place and, you know, then you get distracted by the way YouTube is designed, you know, and you end up in some other place talking about something else, which is kind of interesting, but completely different than what you were initially there to, to, to look for. Right. And that's where kind of courses become quite important. In fact, a lot of the content that you can find on courses, you can definitely find for free on YouTube, but the time it takes to seek it out and kind of connect it together is time that you could be spending doing better things. 
you know so yeah. you know and then there's like the return on investment you know like okay if i pick up this course but i actually commit to it because there are also two kinds of people to learn right there's the people that are really passionate about they want to learn and you know they put all in and then there are the other people that do it because they think they have to they're not necessarily passionate about it, but they just think, okay, if I take this, like what you were describing, that might make me better, you know, more marketable or, or, or something else, you know, but they're not a hundred percent committed. And I also teach online, like uh, physical workshops and uh, uh, in person. How should I say? So they're live, but they're online, right? So, you know, I, I give feedback to my students and I can see it in the students, you know, I explain to them, week after week the same thing and they just you know don't want to put the effort sometimes or i don't don't know what's going on and then there's some others where you explain to them a concept just once and they seem to get it so and in that respect that's why i think the market is not completely oversaturated you know because you know there's eight billion people i don't know what percentage of those eight billion are architects and designers or passionate about architecture and design but all of those people have different interests, you know, and they might want to learn different kinds of things. And it's just finding the right kind of information that I think is going to be, and it already is the bottleneck, you know, it's like, okay, so how do we find this information? Where do we look for? Is it just YouTube? I think that's the first step, right? Is like you go on YouTube and you look for it. But uh, upscaling is essential, you know, in any situation. And how long are usually uh, your classes, and uh, what are the, how are they structured? Because I uh, went now on your page on your website where you have all the possibilities to start, and uh, I know there is the introduction to Blender and the different then type of towers and techniques to model. Um, so, how long it takes to complete one of your classes, and um, uh, should people take them in a certain order? Because, for example, what I think it's very um, difficult when picking up a new skill, it's the initial part, right? Because if I open now Blender and I don't know the interface and I don't know the menu, uh, learning that it's the first part and it's a little bit difficult because I have to click and I don't know the shortcuts. And then uh, then I learn a little bit and I can do lines. And then after you build upon, then learning new things, it's like a language when you know more words. Learning an extra word, it's easy because you have already a big vocabulary. So do you have um, for initial, office, uh, initial um, courses or uh, an order in which people can take them? So to learn as many possible things in the beginning to, to have the... The larger language and then there are this very specific one i don't know like the twisted tower or the advanced tower uh, or it doesn't matter you can pick any and start from there so then i kind of started with a more complex one first so in three courses i cover the basics right so the intro to blender to architecture that's the one that i would suggest to people first and that one is i can't remember how long the courses are is it like an hour maybe or two hours so it's very kind of bite-sized you know that just gets your feet wet uh, uh but 
the one that you really need to get started is the masterclass because I go into, so that one is about four or five hours and I keep adding new chapters to it. In fact, I'm going to add a new one right now on uh, using uh, something called geometry notes in Blender, which is very procedural, but also easy to use to make your work a little bit more efficient and faster. So that's the one that I would recommend for anybody that uh, wants to, try blender but hasn't yet because that would teach you you know like uh, i have initial chapter that just goes through like some of the most basic settings then you learn how to create like a very simple context so you learn everything in that and then we go into the process of like a podium and a tower which are introduce a bit more advanced topics and you, you not only learn modeling but you also learn how to present how to render and add materials, lighting, and so on. Cameras, post-processing. I also have a chart, actually, on my website. If you go a little bit further down, that, that shows you exactly that, because I think that is a very important question that a lot of people might have. It's like, where do I start? Which course should I take? They all kind of look similar in a way, but also different. You know, is one teaching me something different than the other? So that's why I thought it might be useful to create that kind of graphic that gives an overview, which is going to get lo a lot larger very soon, by the way, because... Yeah, I'm working on a couple more courses. No, as I said, I think this is a very interesting uh, niche that you have found because um, Blender has been always um, underestimated, in my opinion, and people go into learning those uh, fancy softwares are as Maya and 3ds Max, but the problem with those is that once you get into the profession, they're extremely expensive. Uh, and knowing Blender at this level, which can... Uh, help you a lot it's saving also a lot of money on the long term and can you do everything with blender is it basically like can you generate also like floor plans out of it i mean i know that you 3d model but like is there is it a so because i don't think i don't know if blender was exactly it's meant for cat. architecture hmm? so it's not cat it's not I know. cat so it's you, you cannot model. use it like autocad uh but with Blender BIM, you can... So a lot of people are actually using it for smaller projects, not the kinds of projects that I tend to work on. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's a little bit more difficult. But for smaller projects, yeah, like you can go on uh, community.osarc.org. So OSARC is open source architecture. It's something that I actually helped initially found. And it's, it's, it's basically a forum where people discuss everything about open source architecture. And something you mentioned earlier that uh, was something that I started with, which is, okay, if I decide to start my office today, what software do I need and how much money do I need to pay for that? Uh, and, and it's a very important thought. And these days, I think you only need one like paid software, which is Rhino, you know, like because Blender cannot do everything. You still need something, but you can totally be subscription free, which, yeah, like if you're a small architecture office and, you know, sometimes you have clients, sometimes you don't, paying those software fees could be a, a significant chunk of your income, your revenue. Oh, also like... um if there are moments in which your business go down, having a software that it's uh, a one-shot payment for the license or free as Blender, it won't make you bleed, at least in those moments. So Not only that, imagine you have to stop working, you know, you have like a sick parent that you need to go and look after uh, and, and you stop paying the license. And then you want to reference something from your old drawings, but you can't. You have to pay 
Autodesk to be able to access your own drawings, which is absolutely crazy when you think about it. You cannot access the stuff that you put so much work and effort in because it's behind a paywall. Sure, you can grab your PDFs, but it's not the same as copying and pasting, you know, a couple of walls or, you know, configuration or something that you have from one file to another. Yeah, that's that's also true. So, yeah, I think this is a big question. And I think that um, oh, I, this is a question that I have asked myself too. And exactly the same was my answer that Rhino, it's probably the most versatile software because you can also build upon with all the add-ons and have some minimal beam functions and you can do parametric and you have so much you can pay one month of i don't know v-ray or enscape and do renderings too so it's like uh, a very powerful weapon in the field uh so it's it's i think it's also the right answer uh well i i don't want to keep you away uh, much longer from your day but the we have a common question at, at the end of each podcast and you mentioned this during our conversation that there are these moments where everyone wants to get some distance from the profession uh, because our profession is very related to creativity and which makes us very sensitive in a certain way and we need to recharge our inspiration and creative batteries uh, are there some activities that you like to do? I don't know, traveling to a certain place, watching some movies, listening to some music or practicing a certain sport. It doesn't have to be all of those things, but what is in your case something that uh, recharges you and inspires you? Yeah, so it's actually something I haven't done a lot to since we moved here, but it's cycling. Uh, it was cycling. I was cycling every day to to back and forth to the office and that helps significantly. I've taken some solo international trips. One time I cycled from London to Belgium via France and then to France and then back. So that was quite a exciting uh, thing to do. And yeah, travel of course is quite useful, especially for architecture. I remember like going to the first time to Athens and you know, like going to the Acropolis again, it's like Rome. Uh, you go in there and it's like the, the foundation of architecture, you know, the proportions and everything. So it felt quite rewarding to see that firsthand. Yeah, definitely study trips are quite cool. I I could recommend them because I also uh, spend all my holidays more or less, uh, whether visiting new architecture places or visiting my family back uh, in Bulgaria. Uh well, Dimitar, thank you very much for participating in the podcast. And uh, I always say this is your first time on the Creative Insider podcast. But as soon as there are new things happening around you or you just want to discuss whatever topic, you're always welcome back. And uh, it was very nice finally getting to know you. And I hope to have you on back in the future again and have a nice open conversation like today. Great. Yeah. Thanks again for having me. And it's been a pleasure. And yeah, let's stay in touch. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Bye bye, everybody. And uh, Dimitri, stay a little bit. I'll tell you bye behind the scene in the, in the green room. <laughs>